Let us pray together. Father, we ask now that you would give us your grace to be not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What do you think is the best known verse in the Bible? What's the best known verse, not just in the church, but in the world, in the culture? Uh, I know when I was growing up, it was undoubtedly John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. It was probably the best known verse in the culture, not only because it was quoted in church all the time, but because uh, there was some guy who at uh, NFL games would hold up a poster with John 3.16 on it uh, back behind the goalpost. So every time in a game there was a field goal or an extra point, you would see that sign, John 3.16. Those of you who are uh, a little bit older probably can remember that when uh, John 3.16 was just there constantly in NFL games. And it became a very well-known verse, a very simple one-verse summary of the Bible. It's a good thing that it was a well-known verse. It became a well-known verse. But I don't think John 3.16 is the best-known verse in our culture today. Uh, I think that award probably goes to the verse I just read in Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not. This is one you hear quoted a lot. In fact, it is often quoted by non-Christians who want to push back against Christians who they perceive as judgmental. That's how Christians are perceived in our culture today, as being judgy. Uh, we're judgmental. If the unchurched in our culture know anything that Jesus said, they know this one verse, or actually it's really just part of a verse. Uh, it gets quoted constantly. They know that Jesus said, judge not, do not judge. And this has really become the world's playbook against the church, has it not? to quote Matthew 7-1 against us. Every time Christians make an unpopular claim about what is right and what is wrong, and in our culture today, most of these unpopular claims have to do with what the Bible teaches about sex or what it teaches about marriage or what it teaches about abortion. What do we hear? We hear, judge not. Who are you to judge? Our own scriptures get used against us. There was a book that came out uh, a few years ago called Unchristian. Uh, maybe you heard about this book. It studied people who had left the church and why they left the church. What is it that drove them out of the church? And in their surveys, they found that 87% of those who left the church described Christians as judgmental. And that's really about the worst thing you can be called today, is it not, to be described as judgmental? Basically, nine out of ten people who left the church said, this is one of the things I found most unattractive about the church, that Christians are judgmental. And again, to, today, to call somebody judgmental, that's about one of the biggest insults uh, you can give. You know, we might think back to the uh, Saturday Night Live church lady skits. You know, where this is how the church lady was. I mean, it captures that, the, the picture that a lot of people have of Christians these days. Uh, we're viewed as smug, as self-righteous, as intolerant, as censorious. That has become the stereotype of the Christian today. 
So we, we need to ask the question, when the world uses the words of Jesus against us, we've got to ask, do they have a point? Are they right about this? Or are they tr- twisting the words of Jesus in an illegitimate way and we should respond by pointing that out? And I think that means we've really got to dig into what did Jesus mean when he said, judge not? Well, one thing that he certainly did not mean is that we cannot make any judgments at all. Uh, I think that is obvious from the immediate context here. You know, they say in real estate, it's all about location, location, location. Well, in biblical interpretation, it's about context, context, context. Because that's really the location of the text. You've got to look at the text in its wider context. And when you do that here in Matthew chapter 7, you see that really when Jesus says judge not, he does not mean you can't make any judgments at all. In fact, in verse 6, he speaks of some people who are described as pigs and dogs. And knowing who they are requires us to make judgments. So even in this immediate context, there's a need for a certain kind of judging that has to take place. You read a little further down in the Sermon on the Mount. You come to verse 15, and Jesus warns us against false prophets. And again, there you have to make a judgment. Who are these false prophets? Jesus says you will know them by their fruits. And of course, that requires us to make a judgment. We have to judge according to the fruit. You keep reading in Matthew's Gospel and you come to Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus lays out a church discipline process. And again, this requires us to make judgments. We have to judge if someone has sinned in such a way that it requires this kind of confronting. And then we have to judge whether or not they're actually repentant. You can't carry out the church discipline process that Jesus describes without making various judgments. So clearly here, Jesus is not forbidding all judgments. And in fact, this is a real characteristic of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is undoubtedly the most famous sermon Jesus preached, really the most famous sermon that's ever been preached in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in the Sermon on the Mount, one thing you find if you read the sermon is there are a lot of very paradoxical statements. They're paradoxes. They might look contradictory. Uh, they look very stark and absolute when Jesus makes them. They sound extreme and one-sided. And we want to say, but Jesus, where's the balance? A lot of these statements are like riddles or puzzles that have to be unraveled in order to be solved. And so it is here. Jesus says, judge not. It's plain, simple, straightforward, right? But actually, it's more complicated than that. Actually, when you dig into it, you find that there are layers and nuances and complexities to this that have to be brought into the discussion if we really want to understand what Jesus means. And it's not just here. So much of the Sermon on the Mount works this way. Jesus says, judge not, but he's not forbidding all judging. In fact, in life, it's just impossible to not make judgments. Making judgments is inescapable, isn't it? Uh, Judgments are made in a court of law. No one goes to a judge or to a jury and says, ah, you're being judgmental. Because it's a court of law. That's what we expect. Rendering verdicts, making judgments is their job. 
So there's a sphere, there's an area of life where judgments are clearly going to be made in a legitimate way. When a student hands in an essay to a teacher, what is the teacher going to do with that essay? The teacher is going to judge it. Because that's really what grading is. Grading is the teacher forming a judgment, an evaluation, an opinion about the paper that's been submitted. Teachers are judges. If a pipe in your house gets clogged and you call out a plumber to fix the problem, what's he going to do? He's going to make a judgment about what's gone wrong. And then he's going to act on his judgment. And if he made a good judgment, when he acts on it, that will fix the problem. Yesterday and today, there are a lot of football games going on, right? Those football games have referees. Referees will be making judgments about penalties. Every time a referee throws a yellow flag or chooses not to, he's making a judgment about that play, about what the players are doing. The judgments may be wrong. We may argue with the judgments. But making judgments is inescapable if you're going to have a game. If you're going to play according to the rules, there have to be judgments about who's keeping the rules and who isn't. To judge simply means to evaluate, to discern. It means we use our critical faculties, and we, we, we use our mind, our reasoning capacities, to form an opinion or a conviction about something. And we have to do this. Indeed, we actually do it all the time. So it can't be when Jesus says judge not, it can't be that he's actually forbidding all judging. We have to ask then, what does Jesus mean? What does judge not mean? Jesus is forbidding a certain kind of judging, which he describes in the verses that follow. We see here the characteristics of an unrighteous judging. Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, Jesus is saying here, the way you judge others is the way God will judge you. You've heard of eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Well, here it's judgment for judgment. The way you treat others and the way you judge them is the way God will judge you. In short, Jesus is saying, if you judge others without mercy, you will be judged without mercy. And this is actually a continual thread that is woven through the Sermon on the Mount. In the previous chapter, back in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives us what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And in the prayer itself, it's so familiar to us, it includes that line, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then after the prayer... Jesus actually picks up on that line in the prayer and provides a little further commentary. It's so interesting. That's the one piece of the prayer Jesus chose to expound upon. And so after he gives the prayer, he goes on to explain that line afterwards. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. And later on in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus actually gave a parable of the unforgiving servant that further expounded this point. A man who's forgiven a great debt by his king, but then won't forgive a smaller debt. And so the king revokes that forgiveness that had been granted. He was unforgiving, and so he became unforgiven. 
And that's really the same point Jesus is making here in Matthew 7. If you are unforgiving, you will be unforgiven. If you are unmerciful, you will be judged without mercy. If you're a fault finder, if you like to nitpick others, if you're constantly critical, you have a critical spirit towards others, if you are hard on others or harsh towards others, God's going to judge you in the same way. Measure for measure. As you do to others, so it will be done to you. Don't judge someone harshly, Jesus is saying. Don't judge someone harshly just because they may sin differently than you do. Don't judge others harshly. Be kind and generous and merciful in your judgments of others. James teaches the same thing, not in the little, well, partly in the little snippet we read from John chapter 4, or from James chapter 4, but also in James chapter 2 verse 13. James, the whole letter is really a kind of commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And in James 2.13, James says, Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. You show no mercy, you get no mercy. And then James goes on to say, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy conquers judgment. This is a principle of the kingdom taught by Jesus, taught by the apostles. Again and again, you see it. You will be judged in the same way you judge. How you judge others is how you will be judged. So that's one thing that Jesus means when he says judge not. Judge not means don't judge in an overly critical or unmerciful way. Jesus is warning about making these kinds of judgments against others. But then Jesus goes on in Matthew 7, verses 3, 4, and 5, to further explain this, to, to show us another aspect of unrighteous judging, the kind of judging he forbids. And really, it's a very funny image. It's comic. You might even say it's physical comedy at its best if you really picture it uh, in your mind. It's kind of cartoonish if you get the, the, the image of it in your mind. But the images Jesus gives here expose another form of unrighteous judgment. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when a plank is in your own eye? It's as if he says, look, your brother has a little piece of sawdust in his eye, and you've got a two-by-four sticking out of your eye. You've got a big log sticking out of your eye. Why do you complain and go after, complain about and go after the speck in his eye when you've got a log in your own eye? And then Jesus says, you hypocrite. See, there it is. There's the charge, the charge of hypocrisy. You hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly, and you can remove the speck of dust from your brother's eye. Now, what's going on here? What is Jesus really saying? First thing to notice, first thing to notice is Jesus really does want us to deal with the speck of sawdust in our brother's eye. Jesus wants us to do that. He wants his disciples to be involved and engaged with one another in such a way that we really can clean out one another's eyes. He wants us to do this kind of eye surgery on one another. After all, you know, you think about it. If you've got a speck of sawdust in your eye, if you ever had a speck of sawdust in your eye, you know it hurts. It can damage your eye. But here's what Jesus wants you to see. To remove that speck of sawdust, it has to be done gently. 
remove the speck of sawdust, but it has to be done gently or you can actually make things worse. You can do more damage to the eye of another trying to get the speck of sawdust out than the speck of sawdust itself is doing if you're not gentle. And further, in order to remove the speck of sawdust, you have to see clearly yourself. If you've got something blocking your own vision, if you've got something blocking your own line of sight, you're not going to be able to remove the speck in your brother's eye. So what is Jesus teaching? Saying the way to prepare yourself to deal with your brother's shortcoming is to deal with your own first. This is another aspect of judging that Jesus describes here. You have to judge yourself first. Judge yourself first. You have to judge yourself first before you can judge others. You have to correct yourself before you can correct others. You have to self-correct before you can others correct. Paul in Galatians chapter 6 really teaches the same thing. At the very beginning of Galatians 6, Paul writes, Brothers... If anyone is caught in a transgression, so if anyone else in your community falls into sin, Paul says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul here says, the spiritual person, the only one who's qualified to bring correction is a spiritual person. Certainly that means somebody who is filled with the Spirit, as Ephesians 5 describes, or who is walking in the Spirit, as Galatians 5 describes right before this passage, somebody who is walking in the Spirit and therefore putting to death the deeds of the flesh. See, the spiritual person is a person who has dealt with his own sin first. He's struggled and wrestled with his own sin. He's learned how to put sin to death in his own life. He's learned how hard that is. And so now he can approach his brother who has fallen into transgression in humility. And this is then is the point. We can put it this way. Correct people the way you would want to be corrected. Correct them in the Spirit. Correct them in a spirit of gentleness. Correct others the way you would want to be corrected. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus gives what has become known as the golden rule. And we've all given this to our children, right? Kids, you all know the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat people the way you want to be treated. This applies to judging and correcting as well. Judge others the way you want to be judged. Correct others the way you would want to be corrected. See, we have a tendency, and I think this is what Jesus is addressing, because it was certainly very present in the Pharisees. You see it in the Pharisees. We have a tendency to be far harder on the sins of others than we are on our own. And this is the kind of thing Jesus is forbidding. We tend to minimize our own faults and maximize the faults of others. And Jesus says, if anything, we should be doing the opposite. We go easy on ourselves and hard on other people. We justify and excuse our own sins while condemning those same sins in others. All too often, we show mercy to ourselves, we justify ourselves, but we're critical and condemning towards others. We can do the exact same thing as someone else. We can be doing the exact same thing as someone else, but we give it a different label. And so it goes something like this. 
I am determined, but he is stubborn. (laughs) I'm determined, but he's pig-headed. He's hard-headed. Same action. We put a different label on it. We describe it as a virtue in ourselves and a vice in someone else. I am persistent. He is annoying. We do this kind of thing. I am focused. He ignores the people around him. I am sharing a prayer request. He is gossiping. I am busy because I'm an important person. He is thoughtless because clearly he's let things get in the way of his relationships. We do this kind of thing all the time. We do it with our spouses. We do it with our children. We do it with one another. This is the sin of the Pharisees. If you could take the essence of Pharisaism and boil it down, this is it. It's being hard on the sins of others and easy on your own sin. That's the essence of what it means to be a Pharisee. We think of the Pharisees as the bad boys of the New Testament because Jesus confronted them. But the reality is they were the well-respected, buttoned-down, dressed-up religious people of their day, highly esteemed by everyone. But what characterized the Pharisees? They were harder on the sins of others than on their own. Jesus said to the Pharisees that they tied up burdens on other people they weren't willing to carry themselves. They were quick to condemn other people and quick to justify themselves. They played a spiritual and religious game in which they always came out ahead of others. They even delighted, it seems, in the failings of others because it allowed them to prop themselves up. And they could say, I'm not like that other guy. Remember the parable Jesus told in Luke chapter 18 where the Pharisee says about the tax collector, I thank you, I'm not like him. And then you've got the, 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 the tax collector who's simply crying out for mercy. And Jesus says it was actually the tax collector who went home justified that day. The Pharisee would not show mercy and so he will not be shown mercy. He judges harshly so he will be judged By God, strictly. This is what Jesus is warning about. The kind of pharisaical pattern of judging. And again, it's not just here in Matthew 7. In Romans chapter 2, Paul does the exact same thing. Paul speaks to the Jews there. He's just exposed Gentile sin. But hey, the Gentiles are pagans. They know they're sinners, right? Romans chapter 2, he turns to the Jews who like to think of themselves as righteous. He says, how can you condemn Gentiles for doing the very same things you do? You condemn the Gentiles for their sins, but you go and and commit the same sins. How can you play that game? He says in Romans 2, in passing judgment, you condemn yourselves because you practice the very things you condemn. Your condemnations of others actually like a boomerang come back against you. Your condemnations of others become self-condemnations. He says to the Jews, you who teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who despise idols but still commit idolatry. You who boast in having the law but who break the law. Again, Romans 2 is practically a commentary on these verses about judgment in Matthew chapter 7. Makes me think of that time in Lord of the Rings. And this is actually one of the few places where I think the the movie is is better in some ways than than even the book. But the fellowship has entered into the caves of Mora. And uh, they're kind of at a, a fork in the cave, so to speak, a fork in the road. And they've got to decide which way to go. 
And Gandalf is trying to decide. He's trying to get a sense for the direction they should go. And meanwhile, Frodo realizes that that despicable creature, Gollum, has followed them. He's heard Gollum's footsteps following them in the cave. He knows Gollum is on their trail. And so Frodo speaks with Gandalf about Gollum's presence in the cave with him. He says, "'Tis a pity that Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance." And Gandalf looks back at Frodo and says, pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. And Frodo says, but he he deserved to die anyway. And then Gandalf says in one of the best and most famous lines Tolkien ever wrote, and I think it's just what Frodo needed to hear in that moment and in so many ways what we need to hear as well. Gandalf says, yes, he does deserve to die, but many who live deserve death, and some die that deserve life. Can you give it to them? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment, for even the wise cannot see all ends. Do not be too quick to deal out death and judgment. And then Gandalf goes on and explains how the pity of Bilbo, the mercy of Bilbo, might indeed rule the fates of men. That Gollum still has some part to play in the story, which of course he does. But what's Gandalf's point to Frodo? Do not be too quick to deal out death and judgment. That's not our place. It's not our place to make those kinds of judgments. To put ourselves in God's place even, as it were, in judging others. That's what Romans 4, I'm sorry, what, what, what James chapter 4 says. Do not judge. Do not judge the way only God can judge. Do not judge the law itself as if you were God. What is the point until you have corrected your own sin, until you have repented of your own sin, until you are spiritual in the language of Galatians 6? You are not fit to correct another. If you don't know what your own sins are, you have no business trying to talk to others about their sins. If you don't know your own sins and weaknesses, if you haven't wrestled through your own sins and weaknesses, you certainly shouldn't go talk to others about their sins and weaknesses. You have to do eye surgery on yourself so you can see clearly enough to then go do eye surgery on someone else. It's interesting, Jesus here is talking about the eye. The eye in Scripture is the organ of judgment. It's how we evaluate things in the world. We go by what we see. So think about this. In Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account, each day God saw what He had made and judged it good, declared it good. He sees and judges. That's how it works. Second Chronicles, we read a little piece this morning. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro. The eyes of the Lord look out, going to and fro, testing the hearts of men. His eyes roam the earth, examining and evaluating. God forms judgments based on what he sees. Of course, he doesn't just see the outside, the outer man, the outward appearance the way we do. He sees into the heart. God has x-ray vision, as it were. In Psalm 11, we find the eyes of the Lord test the sons of men. Again, he looks not just on our outward appearance or outward actions. He looks upon our hearts. His eyes examine and test our very souls. In Scripture, so often physical blindness is a sign of spiritual blindness, which is an inability to judge rightly. This is certainly the case in the life of Isaac in the book of Genesis, who 
physically loses his sight. Physically, he goes blind. And so spiritually, he begins to make bad judgments. His inability to see and make a good judgment is symbolized by his physical blindness. If you have a plank or a log in your own eye, as Jesus describes in Matthew 7, it blocks your vision. It means you cannot see clearly. You can't be a spiritual optometrist for someone else. You can't do eye surgery on someone else when your own vision is blocked. So how then do you clear your own vision? You have to deal with your own sin. And in the context here, that means you've got to get the plank out of your own eye. And that plank, of course, could be any sin in your life which is going to cloud your vision, any sin that you're in. But I think in context here, it is especially and most fundamentally a critical spirit or a haughty posture towards others in the community. Fundamentally, the log in our eye is that critical spirit. It's that posture of pride and arrogance towards our brothers that leads us to be his or her critic, that leads us to set ourselves up as judge over him, to put ourselves really again in the place of God. James addresses that in James chapter 4. Paul addresses it in Romans 14. Paul asks, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all be judged by God. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Paul there is reigning in any kind of judgments we might make about one another. He's especially talking about doubtful things, secondary matters, or areas where Christians could perhaps legitimately disagree. But as was the case in the Roman church, so can be the case today. We can start to identify our opinions with God's will. We can identify our way of doing things with God's way and start to pass judgment on others, even in these areas that perhaps Scripture doesn't address uh, as clearly and directly as we would like. Why does Jesus give us this teaching in Matthew 7? Because we need it. Because it can feel so righteous to judge others. It can feel so righteous, and yet it is so dangerous to judge others in the wrong way. And indeed, this is one of the ways you know that you've judged wrongly. If judging others creates a feeling of superiority in yourself, then you're doing it wrong. I think that's what Jesus is teaching here. If you go after your brother's spat without first removing your plank, Jesus says, you are a hypocrite. And Jesus hates hypocrisy. Now that's what these verses mean. I think that gives you an overview of what Jesus is teaching here. I haven't gone into the pigs and dogs. We can maybe do that another time. But I want to apply this passage in a few different contexts. First, go back to where we started. Think about this passage in relation to the unchurched, since this is the one passage they like to quote, the one part of the Bible that the world seems to like. So play, play out this scenario with me, okay? You're a Christian. You make some kind of moral claim that's based on the Bible, maybe about sex or homosexuality or about abortion, and your non-Christian friend says to you, judge not? Who are you to judge? You know, you're being judgmental. There you Christians go, again, being all judgy. You know, in the world's eyes, the one sin is to call something a sin. Okay, so we do that. So we look judgmental to them. And 
somebody in the world says, all right, judge not, you know, you're being judgmental. How do we respond to that? How do we respond to that kind of scenario? You've made some moral claim based on the Bible. They say you're being judgmental and Jesus said, judge not. Well, one thing you can point out, and I think this is perfectly legitimate to do, is to say, look, what, what, what are they doing when they accuse you of being judgmental? They're being judgmental themselves. They have judged that you are judgmental. They are judging you for judging. They're being judgmental even as they condemn judgmentalism. They're doing the very thing they accuse you of doing. And yes, that is hypocritical. If you say all judgment is wrong and then you judge someone else, then that makes you a hypocrite. You've got a double standard. And it is not wrong for us to point this out in these conversations. And it's not wrong because, look, here's what we're up against in the world today. The way our culture deals with these kinds of controversial moral issues sounds so tolerant. It sounds so tolerant, but really it's intolerant. It sounds so open-minded, but really it's an attempt to cut off all conversation about the issues themselves. It's really an attempt to bully you into silence. And you should not allow yourself to be bullied in this kind of way. You should not allow, we as the church should not allow the world to bully us into silence by calling us judgmental. We can push back on that and say, no, look, you're, you're actually judging. You say all judging is wrong and then you turn around and judge. That's hypocrisy. In fact, hypocritical judgmentalism is all over our culture. Secularists among us will pretend to be neutral and unbiased. Oh, we're not the ones making judgments. But in reality, there is no neutrality at all. Our culture pretends to be tolerant, but in reality is incredibly intolerant. And indeed, our culture is full of hypocrisy and double standards. And one of the things we need to do as the church is expose this. Let me give you one example, and I don't want this to become a rabbit trail that leads to all kinds of other things, but we all know about the Brett Kavanaugh issue, right? Brett Kavanaugh is set to be confirmed as a Supreme Court justice soon. And you probably know that a woman has made accusations against him about something he allegedly did 30-plus years ago. And maybe those accusations are true. Maybe they're not. I think there's a lot of reason to doubt them. And uh, I haven't checked up on the latest. I don't know where things stand as far as a trial and an examination and that kind of thing. But set all of that aside. Okay, that's not really my point. That would be a different discussion. Here's my point. There are a lot of senators, a lot of members of the U.S. Senate, who will undoubtedly vote against Kavanaugh using this as their grounds for rejecting him, that there is this accusation that has been brought against him, when they have done far, far worse in their own past than what he is alleged to have done, And yet they refuse to resign their own positions. And so they say Kavanaugh is unfit for federal office because of what is alleged to have happened. When the reality is they've got far worse skeletons in their own closet that they've managed to keep hidden. Senators even have a fund to pay off to keep these kinds of charges against them hidden. That kind of thing is rank hypocrisy. That is hypocritical judging. That is using a double standard. And I think one of the reasons that so many Americans are fed up with our politics is because 
We have so much hypocritical judging going on in American politics today. So much use of a double standard. I mean, people complain that there are hypocrites in the church, and it's sad, sometimes there are, and we need to deal with that. But there is hypocrisy all over the place in the world. I mean, if you want to stand against hypocrisy, there's no better place to be than in the church because we want to oppose this kind of hypocrisy. And this kind of hypocrisy goes on in the world around us all the time. The world is a judgmental and unforgiving place. The world is full of double standards. And part of our calling, I think, as the church is to expose that. But part of our calling, too, is to do things differently. We have to do things differently in the church. And so let's talk about that for just a minute. There are two things we have to hold together in our community. We have to make judgments and we have to do so with humility and without hypocrisy. We have to make judgments, but we have to do so in the right kind of way, which means with humility and without hypocrisy. We have to make judgments. The church is a place where we do believe in absolute truth. We have to be discerning and discriminating. We have to be critical thinkers. We have to give and receive correction. The fact is, we, we know we're all sinners. We all have junk in our eyes. Every single one of us has garbage in our eyes that needs to be removed. And we all have blind spots, so we can't see it. You know, that's the thing. You can't see something that's in your own eye. And the, the only way it can be removed is if we will play this role in one another's lives uh, of helping one another get the speck out. We've got to be speck removers in one another's lives. We've all got these blind spots. We've got to be able to tell one another the truth about our sin. We've got to be able to speak into one another's lives about sins we see in the lives of others. We've got to tell the truth. But we have to speak the truth to one another in love. Yes, we correct one another, but we do so in gentleness and humility. Yes, we judge one another. Of course we must judge one another. But we judge one another in mercy. We don't nitpick. We're not harsh. We're always ready to forgive. We always believe the best of others. We don't assume it's our job to just go fix everyone else. We're not offended easily by others. We're slow to anger and quick to forgive. We let love cover a multitude of sins. We let love cover what it can. We're patient with one another, even long-suffering with one another. We are respectful even when, and perhaps especially when, we have to be confrontational. Let's get the specks out of one another's eyes. Jesus says to do that. We must get the specks out of one another's eyes. But remember that eyes are sensitive. And so let's do it gently and carefully. Dig around in somebody else's eye the same way you would want them to dig around in yours. Judge others the way you want to be judged. Remember, you can do more damage to someone's eye removing the speck than the speck itself if you're not careful. And of course, again, to do this, it means we have to get the planks out of our own eyes first. So yeah, you have to judge others. That's necessary. That's inescapable. But judge yourself first, which means remembering you are a sinner. 
And when a brother or sister falls into transgression, you remember, but for the grace of God, that and a whole lot worse would be me. Remember, you are a sinner. We come together every Lord's Day and confess our sin. We confess our sins and our sinfulness. We confess our utter dependence upon God's mercy. Our absolute need of God's mercy. And that has to shape and color every judgment we make. And nothing destroys church life faster than hypocritical, self-righteous judging of one another. Church life becomes miserable when people are constantly judging one another in self-righteous ways. When there's no place in the community for a sinner to be honest about his sin. That actually creates hypocrisy. Same thing in your families. Same thing in family life. Nothing makes family life more miserable. Nothing makes family life a hell on earth faster than when family members constantly treat one another as if they could never measure up. Oh, you could never measure up to our standards. And so, you know, we as parents, we can nitpick our kids. Or we can nitpick our spouses. We can become constant fault finders in one another. Constantly pointing the finger at one another. Constantly criticizing one another. Nothing is more destructive than pressuring everyone around you to be perfect or else. Nothing is more destructive than pressuring everyone around you to be perfect all the time and refusing to accept anything less. Because that's just not a reality. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together, which is so good, he talks about this. He talks about the pious community, the pious fellowship, the, 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 the church community that is rightly concerned with pleasing God in everything that's done. But how there, there can be a kind of concern for pious, for, for being pious, for being righteous, for being holy that can backfire. This is what he says. He says this pious fellowship then permits no one to be a sinner. But people still are sinners, so what happens? Everybody then must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is, we are sinners. But it is the grace of the gospel which is so hard for the pious to understand. Bonhoeffer is so right about that. It is so hard for the pious to understand the grace of God. But it is the grace of the gospel which is so hard for the pious to understand that confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great and desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to the God who loves you. He wants you as you are. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before Him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. Thank God for that. He loves the sinner but hates the sin. And then Bonhoeffer talks about how we must treat one another in the same way. Accepting one another on the same terms. God accepts us. He says we should be confessing our sin to God and yes, confessing our sin to one another. In confession of our sin to one another, the breakthrough to real community takes place. 
He says, when the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. Then you can't pretend anymore. You can't justify yourself anymore. The sinner surrenders. He gives up all his evil. He gives his heart to God. And he finds the forgiveness of all his sin in the fellowship of Jesus Christ and in his brothers. That is a beautiful description of what a true Christian community should look like. This is what the church is or what the church should be. A community where we don't have to pretend. A community where we can be straightforward about our struggles and about our failings. Yes, it's a place where judgments must be made. But it's a place where judgments are made in mercy and in tenderness, in gentleness and in grace. That's what characterizes the true community of Jesus Christ. We judge one another in love and for one another's good. We never gloat over others who have fallen. We don't mock their struggles. We don't look down on others or kick them when they're down. We show mercy. We make judgments in love. And in doing so, we point people to God's ultimate judgment. Because see, whatever judgments we make about one another, yeah, they're important and they matter, but they're only provisional. Final judgment belongs to God alone. And the good news is that yes, God is a just judge, but He is also a merciful judge. People can say to us, who are you to judge? But no one can say that to God. Who is He to judge? He is the judge of all. He has the right to judge us all and He will judge us all at the last day. But here's the good news. God has committed all judgment to His Son, Jesus Christ, who already bore judgment on our behalf. His judgment will make everything right. And that's why this judgment at the last day is nothing to fear. Because the God who is the judge has already borne our judgment at the cross. God passed judgment against our sin 2,000 years ago. So he can pass judgment in favor of sinners at the last day. He judged against our sin 2,000 years ago so he can judge in our favor at the last day. And that's our hope. That is our hope. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would make us this kind of community where we judge, yes, but we judge a right judgment. Father, I pray that we would be getting specks out of one another's eyes. But I pray that you would help us to remove the planks and the logs in our own eyes first. I pray that you would help us to judge with mercy that we might be judged with mercy. We thank you, O Father, that you judge Jesus, your Son, in our place. That he has borne the judgment we deserve. So now we can be judged with mercy at the last day. This is our hope. We put our hope in you, O God. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.